Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Has anyone else been playing Tears of the Kingdom obsessively? I mean, I know there are people who have played it for like 200 hours already, which is kind of gross, all things considered, but how many of you have played Tears with the acrophobia that I have? I developed this phobia of heights in video games. It all came from playing Assassin's Creed 2 and doing those dull gurn assassin's tombs, especially the first one in, I want to say the Sistine Chapel, but that's probably wrong. It was a case of, I don't want to fall and have to do everything over again, and that morphed over time into, oh god, I'm up high, panic, panic. So the sky sections, and especially the story segment involving the Rito, just, ugh. It took me a good long time, and I was in a mild anxiety spiral the entire time. Oh, Tycho, I hear someone say, that's not healthy, you shouldn't do that. And probably I shouldn't, but I did. I faced my fears, and I did the job in front of me like an adult, and that is my excuse. So, the portions of the game that involve the Sky Islands, and don't get me started on the Sky Labyrinths, because F that bull S in the ear, are particularly stressful. I'm going to 100% complete the game, because I've 100%ed every Zelda game since I started playing them back in 1989, and I don't plan to stop now. So, there you go. That's why you listen every week, to hear me open up my brain box and vomit my anxiety into your ears, because you don't have enough of your own to deal with. This is the final episode before I disappear for a month and turn the show over to guest readers for Pride Month, and I just want to take the time to say that June 27th is the six-year anniversary of the show. My dumbass little show will be six years old. Please stay tuned after the story segment for a little bit of a retrospective on that. But for now, enough of my word barf. On with the story. Five. It was a gentle daylight rain that awakened me from my stupor in the brush-grown railway cut, and when I staggered out to the roadway ahead, I saw no trace of any prints in the fresh mud. The fishy odor, too, was gone. Innsmouth's ruined roofs and toppling steeples loomed up grayly towards the southeast, but not a living creature did I spy in all the desolate salt marshes around. My watch was still going and told me that the hour was past noon. The reality of what I had been through was highly uncertain in my mind, but I felt that something hideous lay in the background. I must get away from evil-shadowed Innsmouth, and accordingly I began to test my cramped, wearied powers of locomotion. Despite weakness, hunger, horror, and bewilderment, I found myself after a long time able to walk, so started slowly along the muddy road to Rowley. Before evening I was in the village getting a meal and providing myself with presentable clothes. I caught the night train to Arkham, and the next day talked long and earnestly with government officials there, a process I later repeated in Boston. With the main result of these colloquies, the public is now familiar, and I wish, for normality's sake, there were nothing more to tell. Perhaps it is madness that is overtaking me, yet perhaps a greater horror, or a greater marvel, is reaching out. As may well be imagined, I gave up most of the four planned features of the rest of my tour. 
the scenic, architectural, and antiquarian diversions on which I had counted so heavily. Nor did I dare look for that piece of strange jewelry said to be in the Miskatonic University Museum. I did, however, improve my stay in Arkham by collecting some genealogical notes I had long wished to possess. Very rough and hasty data, it is true, but capable of good use later on when I might have time to collate and codify them. The curator of the historical society there, Mr. E. Lapham Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me and expressed unusual interest when I told him I was a grandson of Eliza Orne of Arkham, who was born in 1867 and had married James Williamson of Ohio at the age of 17. It seemed that a maternal uncle of mine had been there many years before on a quest much like my own, and that my grandmother's family was a topic of some local curiosity. There had, Mr. Peabody said, been considerable discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orne, just after the Civil War, since the ancestry of the bride was peculiarly puzzling. That bride was understood to have been an orphaned Marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes, but her education had been in France, and she knew very little of her family. A guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess, but that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people, and in time he dropped out of sight so that the governess assumed his role by court appointment. The Frenchwoman, now long dead, was very taciturn, and there were those who said she could have told more than she did. But the most baffling thing was the inability of anyone to place the recorded parents of the young woman, Enoch and Lydia, Meserve, Marsh, among the known families of New Hampshire. Possibly, many suggested, she was the natural daughter of some Marsh of prominence, she certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Most of the puzzling was done after her early death, which took place at the birth of my grandmother, her only child. Having formed some disagreeable impressions connected with the name of Marsh, I did not welcome the news that it belonged on my own ancestral tree, nor was I pleased by Mr. Peabody's suggestion that I had the true Marsh eyes myself. However, I was grateful for data which I knew would prove valuable, and took copious notes and lists of book references regarding the well-documented Orne family. I went directly home to Toledo from Boston, and later spent a month at Momi recuperating from my ordeal. In September, I entered Oberlin for my final year, and from then till the next June was busy with studies and other wholesome activities, reminded of the bygone terror only by occasional official visits from government men in connection with the campaign which my pleas and evidence had started. Around the middle of July, just a year after the Innsmouth experience, I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland, checking some of my new genealogical data with the various notes, traditions, and bits of heirloom material in existence there, and seeing what kind of connected chart I could construct. I did not exactly relish the task, for the atmosphere of the Williamson home had always depressed me. There was a strain of morbidity there, and my mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child, although she always welcomed her father when he came to Toledo. My Arkham-born grandmother had seemed strange and almost terrifying to me, and I do not think I grieved when she disappeared. I was eight years old then, and it was said that she had wandered off in grief after the suicide of my uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He had shot himself after a trip to New England, the same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled at the Arkham Historical Society. This uncle had resembled her, and I had never liked him either. Something about the staring, unwinking expression of both of them had given me a vague, unaccountable uneasiness. My mother and Uncle Walter had not looked like that. 
They were like their father, though poor little cousin Lawrence, Walter's son, had been an almost perfect duplicate of his grandmother before his condition took him to the permanent seclusion of a sanatorium at Canton. I had not seen him in four years, but my uncle once implied that his state, both mental and physical, was very bad. This worry had probably been a major cause of his mother's death two years before. My grandfather and his widowed son Walter now comprised the Cleveland household, but the memory of older times hung thickly over it. I still disliked the place and tried to get my researches done as quickly as possible. Williamson records and traditions were supplied in abundance by my grandfather, though for Orn material I had to depend on my uncle Walter, who put at my disposal the contents of all his files, including notes, letters, cuttings, heirlooms, photographs, and miniatures. It was in going over the letters and pictures on the Orn side that I began to acquire a kind of terror of my own ancestry. As I have said, my grandmother and Uncle Douglas had always disturbed me. Now, years after their passing, I gazed at their pictured faces with a measurably heightened feeling of repulsion and alienation. I could not at first understand the change, but gradually a horrible sort of comparison began to obtrude itself on my unconscious mind, despite the steady refusal of my consciousness to admit even the least suspicion of it. It was clear that the typical expression of these faces now suggested something it had not suggested before, something which would bring stark panic if too openly thought of. But the worst shock came when my uncle showed me the orange jewelry in a downtown safe deposit vault. Some of the items were delicate and inspiring enough, but there was one box of strange old pieces descended from my mysterious great-grandmother which my uncle was almost reluctant to produce. They were, he said, a very grotesque and almost repulsive design, and had never, to his knowledge, been publicly worn, though my grandmother used to enjoy looking at them. Vague legends of bad luck clustered around them, and my great-grandmother's French governess had said they ought not to be worn in New England, though it would be quite safe to wear them in Europe. As my uncle began slowly and grudgingly to unwrap the things, he urged me not to be shocked by the strangeness and frequent hideousness of the designs. Artists and archaeologists who had seen them pronounced the workmanship superlatively and exotically exquisite, though no one seemed able to define their exact material or assign them to any specific art tradition. There were two armlets, a tiara, and a kind of pectoral, the latter having in high relief certain figures of almost unbearable extravagance. During this description I had kept a tight rein on my emotions, but my face must have betrayed my mounting fears. My uncle looked concerned and paused in his unwrapping to study my countenance. I motioned to him to continue, which he did with renewed signs of reluctance. He seemed to expect some demonstration when the first piece, the tiara, became visible, but I doubt if he expected quite what actually happened. I did not expect it either, for I thought I was thoroughly forewarned regarding what the jewelry would turn out to be. What I did was to faint silently away, just as I had done in that briar-choked railway cut a year before. From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding and apprehension. Nor do I know how much is hideous truth and how much madness. My great-grandmother had been a marsh of unknown source whose husband lived in Arkham. And did not old Zadok say that the daughter of Obed Marsh by a monstrous mother was married to an Arkham man through a trick? 
What was it the ancient toper had muttered about the likeness of my eyes to Captain Obed's? In Arkham, too, the curator had told me I had the true Marsh eyes. Was Obed Marsh my own great-great-grandfather? Who, or what, then, was my great-great-grandmother? But perhaps this was all madness. Those whitish-gold ornaments might easily have been bought from some Innsmouth sailor by the father of my great-grandmother, whoever he was, and that look in the staring-eyed faces of my grandmother and self-slain uncle might be sheer fancy on my part. Sheer fancy bolstered up by the Innsmouth shadow which had so darkly colored my imagination. But why had my uncle killed himself after an ancestral quest in New England? For more than two years, I fought off these reflections with partial success. My father secured me a place in an insurance office, and I buried myself in routine as deeply as possible. In the winter of 1930-31, to 31, however, the dreams began. They were very sparse and insidious at first, but increased in frequency and vividness as the weeks went by. Great watery spaces opened out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, filling me with nameless horror the moment I awoke. But during the dreams they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their unhuman trappings, treading their aqueous ways and praying monstrously at their evil sea-bottom temples. There was much more than I could remember, but even what I did remember each morning would be enough to stamp me as a madman or a genius if ever I dared write it down. Some frightful influence I felt was seeking gradually to drag me out of the sane world of wholesome life into unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage, and the process told heavily on me. My health and appearance grew steadily worse, till finally I was forced to give up my position and adopt the static, secluded life of an invalid. Some odd, nervous affliction had me in its grip, and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. It was then that I began to study the mirror with mounting alarm. The slow ravages of disease are not pleasant to watch, but in my case there was something subtler and more puzzling in the background. My father seemed to notice it, too, for he began looking at me curiously and almost affrightedly. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and Uncle Douglas? One night, I had a frightful dream in which I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces with brachiate efflorences and welcomed me with a warmth that may have been sardonic. She had changed, as those who take to the water change, and told me she had never died. Instead, she had gone to a spot her dead son had learned about, and had leapt to a realm whose wonders, destined for him as well, he had spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm, too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived since before man ever walked the earth. I met also that which had been her grandmother. For eighty thousand years, Pithia Lee had lived in Yohanneth Lay, and thither she had gone back after Obed Marsh was dead.
Yohaneth Lay was not destroyed when the upper earthmen shot death into the sea. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The Deep Ones could never be destroyed, even though the Paleogean magic of the Forgotten Old Ones might sometimes check them. For the present they would rest, but someday, if they remembered, they would rise again for the tribute Great Cthulhu craved. It would be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. They had planned to spread, and had brought up that which would help them. But now they must wait once more. For bringing the upper earthmen's death, I must do a penance. But that would not be heavy. This was the dream in which I saw Shoggoth for the first time, and the sight set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. That morning, the mirror definitely told me I had acquired the Innsmouth look. So far, I have not shot myself as my Uncle Douglas did. I bought an automatic and almost took the step, but certain dreams deterred me. The tense extremes of horror are lessening, and I feel queerly drawn towards the unknown sea deeps instead of fearing them. I hear and do strange things in sleep, and awake with a kind of exaltation instead of terror. I do not believe I need to wait for the full change as most have waited. If I did, my father would probably shut me up in a sanatorium as my poor little cousin is shut up. Stupendous and unheard-of splendors await me below, and I shall seek them soon. Hia, relay! Cthulhu, Fatagan! Hia! Hia! No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that Canton madhouse, and together we shall go to marvel-shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many-columned Yohaneth Lay, and in that lair of the Deep Ones we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. And that is the end of this story. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to kick into my Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. It has been six years since the show started. Oh, this is the retrospective bit of the episode. Feel free to skip it if you're interested, but I think it's interesting, and it's important to me, so I'm going to share it with you. For anyone who doesn't know how the show came about, I think I talked about it on the first Innsmouth episode because it was the show I was originally going to kick this show off with, except it turned out that recording a podcast is a whole lot of work, and I didn't want to do that work. And then one day, I sat down and recorded the music of Eric Zahn. I barely edited it and created an account, stole some art from some rando punk band for the cover, and launched the show. Over the next few weeks, I very sporadically uploaded one story one day, the next two days later, and then the next a week and a half after that. I was getting a few listens, but not many. I put out the original reading of Call of Cthulhu all in one day. Three episodes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. Barely a ripple. I was recording in my kitchen with a blue snowball microphone, no pop blocker, and a cat wanting my attention whom I was desperately trying to keep distracted. That first episode, Eric Zahn, 
has been downloaded and or listened to a little more than 6,400 times. Over the years, I moved from my kitchen to a table in our apartment when we got married and from there into my bedroom. I did a couple of readings on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and that really boosted the numbers of the show. Over a week, I watched my download numbers triple, if not quadruple. I launched the Patreon. As Patreons go, it's not super successful. I've had my ups and downs with it. Like Bob Ross said, you gotta have some sadness in life so you know when the good times come. I'm waiting on the good times now. Following the engineering maxim that make it so that it barely works is the hardest part, I cobbled together a very rough soundproofing design. It involved very flimsy cardboard boxes, foam soundproofing, and lots of spray adhesive, which may have gassed me a little bit during the first couple of recordings. Iteration on that design followed, and it got more stable, and with the introduction of more soundproofing and a legit closet in a quiet part of the house and the removal of the cardboard element, I now have a fairly decent recording studio. I will never be a big, famous voice actor, but I'll be a moderately successful in his spare time podcaster, and that's good enough for me. I'll never be on a panel at Dragon Con or do a live reading for a sold-out crowd, but I've written two really good collections of short fiction, I've done 647 episodes of my show, and since February of 2018, I have not missed a single week or scheduled episode. Pandemics, wars, ice storms, tumultuous elections, an attempted coup of the government, computer crashes, and various personal crises have not stayed this courier from the swift completion of his appointed rounds, and I'm pretty damn proud of that. Sweeney Todd crashed and burned, but that's what I get for overextending myself and thinking I can start a ridiculously overambitious project with no time, energy, or motivation. I will eventually get back to it, I promise, but when, I don't know for sure. Here's some fun stats for everyone. 647 episodes to date. Every single one, except for, I think, two, are still available, and those were stories I got permission to read and have available for a year and then had to take them down. That's one episode every three and a third day, statistically speaking. 838,563 downloads in total of the show. That's 388 downloads a day averaged out since the beginning. The first year of the show, I only did 1,128 downloads. That's it. Year to date, I'm at just over 97,000. Each year has been bigger and more successful than the last, and I'm hoping that continues to hold. It's a little early to guess at anything now, but I might be on track, maybe a little bit under. Each episode, I keep track of its opening week and month downloads and keep a record of the biggest ones. Both of those records were beaten just this past week by Innsmouth Chapter 3, which is 95% Zadok Allen's drunken ramblings about the town. That was a lot of fun to record and edit. Sometimes I just left the mistakes in, because Zadok's drunk, who's going to notice? Anyway, 679 downloads in its first week, and currently at 871 for the first month, though that still has a week or so to go. I'm really happy to see that, and hopefully that record will keep being broken in the future. I don't have any plans to go anywhere, so if you enjoy listening to my stupid little show of amateur readings of extremely niche fiction edited in a subpar manner by an idiot, well, I'm grateful for you. The show is hosted, edited, produced, uploaded, and published by me, Mike Queller. The artwork for the show is by Ruth Anna Evans. Moral support by my wife and viewers like you. Oh, uh, last thing about the show that I don't think I've ever talked about here. Why, if my name is Mike Queller, do I call myself Tycho Alhambra? Well, for that, we have to go back in time over a decade ago. 
I was sitting on a couch in the place where I lived, chatting with my friend Mora, and we were going through Craigslist personals ads and making fun of them. If any of you need proof that there is some sort of plan to the workings of the universe, it was that very self-same activity that my wife and some of her friends would be engaged in when she came across my ad and decided to respond to it, and here we are. We were chatting, and I said, man, we should really be recording this and making a podcast out of it. And we did. That podcast, by the way, it's on Craigslist, is no longer extant. There are no copies of it to be found anywhere on all the internet, which I think makes it the only thing that's ever been uploaded to the internet and then lost forever. Out of perhaps an overabundance of caution, because people on Craigslist be crazy, my co-host and I went by fake names. I was Tycho, she was Zoe, and my sister, when she appeared on the show at random intervals, was Dulcie, short for Dulcinea, because our parents, in the fiction I created in my head, gave us all weird names. And Tycho just sort of stuck. There were a few other shows I did, don't worry about them, they weren't very good, but this one is the pride of my podcasting life. I'm so proud of this show and what I've done with it. I'm so glad for the listeners I have and for those who support the show. This is by far the most successful thing I've ever done and will probably only ever be outlived by my marriage. Thank you all so, so, so much for being here with me week after week. I appreciate every single person who downloads the show. Even the ones who listen to one episode decide it's not for them and pop back out. Even the ones who listen, hear the first 15 seconds, think to themselves, Ugh, another woke liberal leftist ruining all my fun, and turn it off. Anyway, six years. Thanks for listening, and remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. I will see you in July. <laughs>